Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal and co-host of An Honorable Profession. Today, I sit down with longtime New Deal leader and mayor of Shelby County, Tennessee, Lee Harris. He was first elected mayor in 2018 and previously served as community on the city council and a state senator. In this episode, we talk about Tennessee's headline-making legislative session on gun control as well as some of the mayor's innovative initiatives, like his work to break the cycle and provide opportunities for formerly incarcerated individuals, as well as breaking down barriers to quality healthcare for his constituents. We talk about how the mayor sees himself as an educator first, how his love for community drew him into politics, and how everyone can be an advocate. I hope you enjoy. All right, Lee Harris, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is so great to see you. I've been looking forward to this interview. I thought I'd start, you know, you are from Tennessee, as I mentioned in the intro, obviously, and I feel like Tennessee's been in the headlines recently. You had the Tennessee Three earlier this spring, and then, of course, the legislature went into the special session last month to try to tackle some gun control stuff. It feels like kind of came out with not a lot. I know we're going to, your county, not state legislature anymore, but I just thought, and we're going to talk a lot about what you're doing in your county, but just thought I'd start with just kind of like taking your temperature on, you know, the politics in Tennessee right now, particularly around gun violence. What was your take coming out of those last six months or so about where the parties are and how, how things are going down there? Well, great. So I've been in office now for 2011. So I should start there and kind of, you know, before this role as county mayor, I was in the Tennessee General Assembly. So I served in the state Senate for four years. And I got to say, over time, our politics in Tennessee have just become more divisive. And so it's harder to get things done on a bipartisan basis. I mean, here, like the rest of the South and like the rest of the country, I think, you know, there is popular appeal to doing something about the gun violence we've seen. I mean, it's touched home. We've had some really high profile shootings like the Covenant shooting here in Tennessee and lots of mass shootings, you know, elsewhere around our state. And so I think there is bipartisan support among the populace at large, but it's among legislators, I think it's really, really a tough puzzle. So the three big areas, of course, that we are always pushing for on my side of the aisle are, you know, background checks, making sure that there is some regulation of semi-automatic weapons and the third piece is safe storage. And so as to the first two, you know, we've seen no movement, even though I think Tennesseans at large would like to see something done in terms of background checks and regulation of semi-automatic weapons. But as to the last, we have seen a little bit of movement on safe storage. So we have seen some bipartisan advancement of bills related to safe storage. So we're really, you know, I mean, it's not nearly what we'd like to see in terms of finishing the job, but it is a start. And I'd like to say that in Tennessee, as, as a result of that special session, that more people will get access to gun locks and more people will 
will hear more public safety announcements related to safe storage. And that is critical because, you know, not only do we have too many mass shootings, we do have too many uh, accidental shootings. Guns fall into the hands of juveniles and juveniles, you know, shoot themselves or others. We have too many guns fall into the criminal stream because of car break-ins and safe storage has a role to play there. And, you know, upwards of 30, 40 percent of homicides you see in a particular place are suicides. And safe storage also slows down access to a gun such that some of those people may give a beat or two and not make the worst decision uh, for themselves and for their family and commit suicide. So safe storage is a big deal. We lobbied hard for the Tennessee General Assembly to do something about safe storage. And so we did get some positive advancement out of that. And we have a program in, in Memphis in Shelby County, where I'm the mayor, that we started over the last six or seven months around safe storage. And so the state now is going to take our program statewide. And so we're really pleased by that. And it's a program to make sure that anybody who wants a gun lock will get one in the mail for free. Oh, that's amazing. I'm glad you pointed out that, you know, highlight that success. You know, before we move on to more policy and some other stuff you're working on in your county, there is this, it feels like Tennessee is one of those places where there feels like there's a little bit of a mismatch between the will of the people and what's happening in the legislature, as you kind of point, rightfully pointed out. Any thoughts on like how we eventually overcome that? Like what, you know, it's so frustrating. It feels so anti-democratic, you know, that essentially we have people that are, you know, not kind of representing the will of the people in the state that they live in. And I just, it's something we've got to, you know, if we're going to make this democracy thing work, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to figure out. You know, I wonder, you know, you obviously are an executive. It's a different, it's a a little bit of a different deal where you are, but any thoughts on how we tackle that one? Yeah, I'm, so I'm in the executive branch, that's right. And so a lot of my role is governance and good governance. But at the same time, even in this role, and certainly in my prior roles in the state Senate and in the city council, I was on the Memphis city council too. I was an advocate and I'm still an advocate. So I run an advocacy organization even, even right now. And so, you know, we're always trying to, you know, think about how we advance on issues. And it's always kind of the same. It's, it's your message or your messenger. And so those are the kind of things you control. And so, you know, with respect to some of these issues, we you got to keep plugging away until you can find the right message and or the right messenger. I mean, that gets into the kind of coalition building and finding the right voice that will amplify and reach and reach the people you want to reach. And so, you know, it'll happen. I mean, you know, 2006 is when things started going south. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Not yeah, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, things started going south in 2006. And so that, you know, that was a long time ago. And the pendulum will swing and the pendulum may swing the other way here soon. And a lot of it hinges on, you know, us working really, really hard, us having really, really great, great candidates and keep plugging away. And so, you know, that's happening. Some of that's happening. I think that's a super... Great point you're making, actually, too, about good governance. You know, it feels to me like part of our job as people who believe that government has a role to play and can do good things is to, you know, make sure that we're solving problems and then telling about those successes of solving problems. I feel like you are, you know, I've known you for a long time and watched you, known you since you were making that transition from legislature to the county executive office. And I've been so excited to watch all the things you've been able to do in Shelby County, which is why I was so happy to have you on to talk about some of those successes. Criminal justice reform in particular, you talked about safe storage, but you've done a lot on criminal justice reform. It's been a a big uh, priority for yours for many years. Tell me about kind of some of the stuff you're doing and, and why that issue is so important to you. Well, that's exactly right. So we have done a number of things from the police reform kind of stuff that people talk about to reentry, to making sure that folks that have a criminal history reintegrate back into the community and do so successfully. So that's kind of where our head is at right now, even though we worked on, you know, you name it, we've worked on it here at the county level. But our head is right now focused on reentry. And so, you know, we finished off, you know, our push for ban the box. That was the idea that we wanted to prevent discrimination during the application process for Shelby County jobs. You know, it's a big organization, Shelby County government. 
you know, it's 5,000 employees. We hire 50 folks a month. And we still, on our job application, ask whether or not you have a criminal history. And we know that set people up for failure. So we banned the box. We took that checkbox off of the application so that everybody could be, you know, viewed and have a chance to get some of these jobs. At the same time, we're pushing the envelope and innovating in this space. So ban the box is an effort uh, to prevent discrimination. And so we're also trying to figure out how do we take affirmative action, if you will. So we want to try to figure out how we make sure that people with a criminal history get jobs in Shelby County government. How do we curate and give them a preference for jobs that we have because our jobs are high paying. Our minimum wage is $17 an hour. They all have benefits and a pension. So how do we make sure that those folks get those jobs? And so we just started in the last three or four months a new program. We call it Work to Break the Cycle. It's worktobreakthecycle.com. And at worktobreakthecycle.com, we curate our jobs such that we list jobs where we specifically would prefer to have an individual with a criminal history to apply for that job and get that job. And so we're really, really you know, proud of that innovation. And we think that pushes the envelope. We haven't heard of anybody doing that. And we're going to try to encourage our employers to also specifically recruit those with a criminal history for jobs that they know that they'll be qualified for. I can mention one other thing that's in the pipeline of our work on kind of the reentry side of that. Yeah, please. Yeah. You know, we've also taken a look at our application and we noticed that we require driver's licenses, right? So we require driver's license to get all of our jobs as well. Well, Shelby County, the largest county in our state, has about, you know, 950,000 residents, seven cities. And over 100,000 of our residents we know don't have a driver's license. And almost all of them can't easily get a driver's license because, you know, we are an area that has has a lot of challenges, particularly the challenge of poverty. And a lot of our residents have fees or overdue child support or criminal history that precludes them from ever, and practically speaking, ever getting a driver's license. So that's over 100,000 residents that off the top are ineligible for some of the really good jobs in Shelby County government. So what we decided we're going to do now is we're going to take the driver's license requirements. We already took the box, the box that you check to identify yourself as someone with criminal history off of the application. And now we're going to take the driver's license requirement off, too, because for most of our jobs, you don't need a driver's license. And all it does is serve as a barrier for getting these really high paying for the Memphis and Shelby County area. Uh, what are high paying jobs with really great benefits where you can take yourself and your family? So, you know, reentry to police reform, you know, we're working really, really hard to, you know, try to do things that we think advance the needle, obviously with a progressive mindset and always kind of with a coalition, right? We're always trying to build coalitions. And I actually, right now, I'm in not a bad place. I've got 13 members of the county commission. And I've got nine Democrats now, so it's not a bad place. I started with That's, yeah, yeah. I started with seven or eight Democrats. Now we're up to nine, and I've got four Republicans. But most of these reforms we're talking about, we are able to get bipartisan reform, both Republicans to support and Democrats to support. Even though we come in with a really, really progressive vision that puts in front those who are most vulnerable, those who are in most need, and those who are searching for opportunity. Yeah, I love that so much. And I do think that that's a theme I've seen in, in your work is this kind of trying to expand access and break down barriers across topics that you've worked on. And, and I love the idea of the driver. I mean, it's just a simple, right? It seems like a simple thing. If you don't need a driver's license, why do I have to show you a driver's license? If I can't get a driver's license, right? It's break the cycle. I love that language that you're using. I think that's a language we should use more nationally. I, I've been impressed with Josh Shapiro, for example, in, in Pennsylvania, the governor, you know, saying not every job in this county government requires a college education. Why are we saying that everybody has to have a college education, right? I just, I love this idea of kind of breaking down barriers 
barriers to access and to opportunity. And it feels like that's something that you have spent a lot of time thinking about very deliberately. And I'm going to look at my notes to make sure that I've got the name of it right. You have another initiative I think speaks to this, which is like driving the dream, right? I loved that when I was reading about driving the dream, there was a language about there's no wrong door to come into cat to come into government to find out the services that you're able to access, whether it's things like housing or childcare or nutrition or other things. So, you know, one of the things I've been super, it looks to me like you've really spent a lot of time thinking about breaking down barriers across topics. I know another initiative that you have worked on is pre-K, for example, and trying to get more kids into kindergarten and give people more opportunity. I mean, so you're talking about criminal justice or education, or I know you're working a lot on healthcare, like is kind of breaking down barriers a big theme that you're really focused on? Is that a correct analysis of some of the work that you're doing? Absolutely. And we do that in a variety of ways. I mean, you mentioned one of those ways, pre-K. So we do have needs-based universal pre-K in Shelby County. So that came in uh, when we came in in 2018. That was the first big initiative we worked on. So I was elected in 2018. And that was the first thing to tackle is to make sure that we had the funding in place to make sure that any family that wanted to have access to pre-K would have access to pre-K. So, you know, we built a big coalition in conjunction with the city of Memphis, which is also a big government in this area. And so arm in arm with the city of Memphis, we launched our universal needs-based pre-K program. You know, it's expensive, but it's even more expensive to not support those families that were looking for something productive for their four-year-olds to do. And so at the same time, we're right now looking at you know, the other ends of the new spectrum, right? What are we doing for three-year-olds? Are we making sure the three-year-olds also have something productive to do for families that want to do something to, to support them? And at the same time, we're looking at the other end of the spectrum, trying to support our university environment. And so we've got several colleges here, including a Black college, uh, Lemoyne Owen College. And so we're working on a major initiative to support Lemoyne Owen College to make sure that more folks who want to go to Lemoyne Owen have an opportunity to go to Lemoyne Owen. And part of that is making sure that some of those classes and instruction can be found outside of one campus setting. Because sometimes that campus is hard to get to here in Memphis. And so we want to, you know, have additional satellite locations. It's the approach that the University of Memphis, which is our largest university, uh, has taken. Uh, satellite campuses across our very large geography. And so we want to do the same for our historically black college here, Lemoyne Owen. So we continue to work on these barriers. There are just uh, so many that families, you know, grapple with and that Shelby County government can play a role in helping to surmount. Yeah, I know the pre-K work that you're doing, you're doing in conjunction with the Make Home Community Outcomes Fund, I know. And that's another what thing I love about some of this, the work you've done, I think probably not just in that area and probably other areas, but is measuring results and being able to really be such a good steward of public investment to show people that it's working. I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about making, you know, I think Democrats, as people who believe government can do good things, you know, we have to actually show that it is doing good things. And then that will presumably, you know, foster more public support for those programs, foster more investment in those programs. So, you know, how have you thought about kind of measuring results, telling success stories, making sure people kind of are aware of all of some of these things that you're doing well and that government's working in, in ways? Um, no, I think that's right. And so some of it is extremely difficult to do because there are so many bureaucracies that are involved and it is frequently very tough to get large bureaucracies to talk to one another. And so you've kind of alluded to one solution is if you can find the right third party partner on a particular issue, that can help a great deal. So the pre-K program is as good of an example as any because the pre-K program involves Shelby County government. You know, we put in millions of dollars to support the program every year. 
city of Memphis does as well. And obviously the Memphis Shelby County school system has a big role to play. Well, all three of those entities are huge. It's just gargantuan institutions. And so for any one of those institutions to also now know what's going on in every pre-K classroom, which is a little bit outside their charge, right? Memphis Shelby County Schools is a K through 12 organization. Shelby County government and city of Memphis certainly don't really directly get into the classroom setting, but we still want to know what's going on. And we still want to be able to report whether or not the money's being used usefully and whether or not families are being served. And so, you know, in that case, you know, we really found a great partner and, you know, we were able to try some things we learned from some of the New Deal conferences about social impact bonding and bringing in third party partners that can both administer some of those funds, but also see if those funds are being used for productive purpose, you know, to give growth in, you know, some of the educational components for the kids and for the students. So, you know, it's worked out well for us. And so we've got that third party partner and, you know, it's spun off into a a successful nonprofit that also is advising us on doing even more. I talked about the three-year-olds, but there are a whole host of things we could do, but you really need a partnership to navigate some of this stuff because some of these entities, it is very, very difficult for us to talk to one another. I'm going to take a quick break here to just let our listeners know that if you want to find another podcast you might enjoy, I encourage you to check out EdChat. It's a dynamic podcast by the Education Reform Now Advocacy Organization. Join educators, policy experts, and advocates as they examine the intersection of education and politics. Conversations cover how to lead for students in an impactful ways, given record drops in test scores, how to navigate politically treacherous environments, how to ensure equity in education, gain insights into the policies that impact our students while discovering effective strategies to drive meaningful change. EdChats, the podcast for educational policy trends impacting today's political landscape, is available anywhere podcasts are found. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes so much sense. And I mean, I, you know, that program you have, it's got remarkable results. I know it's, you know, I think that the pre-K reading readiness and all kinds of metrics that you're looking at, have, you know, have clearly have such a huge impact. So congratulations. Congratulations on that for sure. And another area I want to make sure we had time to talk about is I know you're, you're thinking a lot about healthcare. You've talked about poverty being such a huge, you know, factor for so much of your county. And I have to assume healthcare outcomes are part of that. You know, tell us a little bit, you know, both about what you're doing, but kind of what are your goals in trying to, you know, move the county from a healthcare perspective to a better place? Absolutely right. So Tennessee is one of the few states left at this point that didn't expand Medicaid. And so that has really negative results and impact on folks that are without insurance or that are underinsured. And that has impact on our providers because it limits the level of revenue that they receive. And so, you know, some of their services, they've got to be a lot more careful about. And so Shelby County government is entering that space. We'd like to think that the next 12 months for us is going to be the year of healthcare. And so we're doing a lot to create more access to healthcare. Our biggest kind of achievement that's still in process is to completely rebuild the campus of our public hospital. We have one public hospital here in Memphis and Shelby County. It's regional one. It serves the entire West Tennessee area and even a larger radius than that. And so we're going to rebuild that campus and it's going to be a billion dollar project when it's done. So that's a big one for us. At the same time, we are trying to take healthcare to the streets. So we want to have access points throughout Memphis and Shelby County. So we just launched one of our access points. It's called Shelby Cares. And so this is a place where if you come in and this will be built in the urban core, if you come through our doors, we're already open. If you come through our doors of our Shelby Cares office, 
then we're going to give you healthcare coaching around some conditions that are too prevalent in Memphis and Shelby County. The conditions are things like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and a few others. We're going to give you healthcare coaching and try to keep those conditions, those diseases from spiraling out of control such that you end up in an emergency room or you end up, you know, with, with blindness or amputation or worse yet, a heart attack, stroke or death. So we want to see that in more locations across our county, bringing direct access and healthcare coaching directly to the community. And then the final piece for us is, is that we believe healthcare has to include mental health. And so we're working hard on a variety of fronts there. The one thing I'll point out right now is we've got a high volume jail and that's under Shelby County government. So there are 2000 detainees in our jail on any given day. And most of those detainees have a mental health illness and they languish in the jail many times for 200 days or more because it's hard to advance a case in the jail unless you have 14 days of stabilization. And so the sheriff can't provide 14 days of stabilization because he's not a healthcare provider and so forth. So these people just languish there, you know, waiting, waiting. And they sit there waiting on those cases for, as I said, you know, upwards of a year or even more in many cases. And so what we're going to do is, with the support of the Shelby County Commission, we're going to try to build an inpatient mental health care facility connected with our jail. And in those cases of health care needs, we're going to shift those individuals to the healthcare facility, mental health care facility, for a 14-day curriculum to get them stable and get them on their way. And we think that's going to be a game changer. We don't think that's happening more than a handful of places in the country. And we want Shelby County to join those, you know, two or three or four places around the country where the jail actually has a mental health care facility to move those cases forward and move those individuals into care. And so 14 days is a lot shorter than 200 days. And we think we can get them stable, get them the mass they need, get them an exit strategy uh, like transitional housing and all the rest and get them on their way. So we're really, really proud of the progress so far. And we think we're going to be able to break ground on that in the next, you know, like I say, the next 12 to that's probably 12 to 18 months here. We think we'll, we'll get the money and be able to break ground on that. That's super exciting. I mean, it goes straight to what you were talking about earlier about breaking the cycle, right? I mean, it's, you know, this this idea that all these things work in tandem together, right? It's not just housing. It's not just mental health. It's not just criminal justice. They're all kind of connected together. And I love it when, you know, this thinking holistically and being able to kind of put these pieces together to provide opportunity and stability for people and like, you know, real opportunities, you know, I mean, I just think that's super exciting. I'm so curious. Actually, I have two questions for you. One is, did you use any, I know that you're also working on public health care workforce as well, making sure that there's a path for people to get into the public workforce. For any of those things, have you, were you able to use federal dollars that were coming? We had so much investment from Washington coming through ARPA after the COVID stuff, trying to you know address some of these longstanding inequities that were you know laid bare during COVID. Any federal dollars that you're using for any of the stuff we talked about today, just out of curiosity? Absolutely. Almost all of it. I mean, all the things, all the things have federal dollars in the mix supporting them. There's no doubt about it. The federal dollars for us, as I said, we're a pretty big organization. Our budget is $1.6 billion currently, and it's so large over the last four years, or not four years, last two or three years, I guess, last two or three years, because we've seen a real historic influx of support from our partners at the federal level. And so it's not just ARPA, but there are all kinds of ways over the last you know, two, three years that we have really been the beneficiary of a lot of opportunity. And it's an opportunity that we've used to do 
more or less <laughs> all of these programs, to be honest. I mean, you mentioned something that, you know, jogs to my mind right now is, is we've just launched a program that's based exclusively on federal dollars that we want to grant for to provide graduate level education for people in our public health department. We have a huge Shelby County Health Department, and we're going to be able to support and pay for our employees or those that enter in public health to you know, pursue some graduate learning, graduate certificates and graduate diplomas. And we're going to be able to pay for that. And that's because, you know, we want to grant at the federal level. So it's really just been historic these last few years. So, you know, we saw a sea change in just a lot of different ways when the Biden administration came in. And some of that was just even on the vaccine front. So, you know, it was a little bit chaotic. For, well, not a little bit. It was, it was, just, it was just chaotic <laughs> right. full stop for yeah, a lot yeah. of the pandemic. And then as we saw the administration change, you know, a lot of the messaging became a lot more consistent. A lot of the operational aspects of delivery of vaccines and so forth became a lot more consistent and just, you know, it was just a lot different navigating that pandemic as things changed. And as I said, the access to resources for us have been, you know, incredible, historic, and allowed us to just innovate on so many different levels. Yeah. Well, I think that goes back to something we were talking about earlier too, which is this idea that, you know, too many people I feel like don't understand that or don't know about it or don't, you know, give credit where credit is due to the Biden administration, frankly, you know, leading the charge to make these investments in America. And I know you're doing all you can. And it's, you know, I hope that I know everyone is, but I think we got to just keep the drum beat up about, you know, how these investments have really impacted real people's lives. Like you're talking about the, you know, whether it's the mental health or the jobs or the pre-K I mean, all of these things are, you know, affecting real people in your community. And I think that we've just got to keep that drum beat up that the Democrats delivered, frankly, because it's so frustrating that if feel like people, you know, are like, why are we spending money? It's like, we're spending money because we're creating opportunity and we're creating pathways and all of those things. So thank you for all you're doing of all of that front. I want to make sure I get to ask you a little bit about your path to where you are now. You know, I know that you went to law school and eventually made your way into actually being a professor of law for a while. I think the first African-American professor at the law school where you're at, which is Memphis Law School, correct? Did you think you were going to be a professor your whole life? Did you go into law school thinking that's what you wanted to do? How did you get on this path that you're on? Well, I wanted to go into politics and government. I think that was a kind of a longstanding, uh, you know, career objective. So I went to Morehouse for college and then I went to Yale for law school and I enjoyed law school. And, you know, so in law school, I did get kind of the law professor bug. I don't know that I had a specific timeline in mind of when I might become a law professor, but, you know, opportunity presented itself at the University of Memphis. I already knew a lot of people on the faculty. And so I started teaching there not long after and taught there for 14 years. And so I think of myself as an educator first, even though I'm a full time politician right now. At some point, I hope to go back to university life, and I just really enjoyed it. And, you know, I taught in the area of, of business law. So I taught classes like contracts and business organizations or corporate law and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just really enjoy university lifestyle and student advisement and the writing and the research and the politics part. Yeah, I thought I was going to be involved in politics because I think that's one way you can serve and help people and change lives. I don't think it's the only way, but I did think it was one way. So I thought I'd do that. And I, you know, ran for my first office. I did not win. And I learned a lot and I ran for a second office, which was the Memphis City Council in 2011. And I won that race. And maybe a couple years after that, I was invited to join New Deal leaders. And I was very excited by that. So I've been around for a while. So it's probably been 10 years. And so that's Yeah, cool. absolutely. Why do you think that? So not everybody grows up thinking, I want to be in politics or government. What was it in your background, childhood or whatever it was that kind of made you think that's a path that I'm interested in? 
Well, I'm from Memphis, and so I love this community. I think it's a really special place, and I think the people are, you know, unique and interesting and fun and, and all the things. And so I thought that our community, though, suffers sometimes, not all the time, from not having great leaders in enough places. And so I wanted to be part of the solution of lifting up my city and making sure that there was, a, you know, great individuals with skills, advocacy skills in more places that mattered. And so I decided to do it. And I said, you know, and when I was on the city council, I represented a community that had lots of challenges in terms of income and so forth. But I said that, you know, this community, it wasn't the community I was raised in per se, but I said, this community is going to have the best advocate they've ever seen. And we're going to deliver for folks. It was North Memphis, for those who know Memphis. And I said, we're going to deliver for North Memphis every single day and worked really hard on that and really enjoyed that work. And so at a certain point, I decided to run against an incumbent for the state Senate. And I ran against the incumbent for the reasons I just talked about is that I just thought that there were, you know, a need to have good people in these offices. And I didn't necessarily believe we had that at the time. So I ran against an incumbent and, you know, was fortunate to win that race and decided to run for county mayor. So I've been in this business for a lot longer than I thought. And we'll see where it goes. But at some point, I'm going back to campus life. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's we'll fair. See. That's yeah. fair. That's fair. Well, I love that we're ending this where we started, which is as an advocate. You use that word at the beginning and now you're using it at the end. And I think to me that means that, you know, you're fighting for the people of your city. You're, you know, you're trying to find these opportunities and create these opportunities for people. So what do you say to anybody who wants to advocate, whether they're an elected or whether they're not an elected? You know, what do you want to say about being an advocate for making things better where they live? Well, the key to advocacy is, you know, giving voice to a concern and following up. So if they really have something that they want to see done, they've got to do those couple of things. I'd give that advice. I'd also, in terms of just politics, I'd give advice to anyone, anywhere, whether or not they want to be a politician or not, to get involved in a campaign. You don't have to be the candidate yourself. You don't have to run for office or anything like that. And I respect people who don't want to do that because there are lots of other ways to serve. But I do think it's a good idea to be a part of a campaign in a serious way, you know, so that you get a little bit of experience because campaigns explain why things are the way they are. They explain how politicians operate. They explain how government work. And it's hard to see that until you are actually in a campaign. I think it's eye-opening. It's probably like working in the kitchen of a restaurant. You think just being a customer, you understand how a restaurant works, but no, not really. <laughs> Try to work in the kitchen a few days, and then you'll see why this thing is on the menu and why this thing comes out this way. Right. Campaigns are, speak to that, too. I think campaigns explain why this is on CNN, why this is an issue, why this person is doing this. It's because the campaign process you know, drives a lot of that. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Well, I hope everyone will heed your advice and go get involved, whether it's running for office or working for somebody who is. So, but Lee, thank you so much for being with us and thank you for all you're doing for your constituents down there in Shelby County. And we'll see you real soon. Very good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.